good to be with you this morning. It's a pleasure and a privilege to have this opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning. And this morning we're confronted by the Lord Jesus about our anger. So leave it to Shane and Kevin to skip town for this one. But, you know, they get lust next week, so it evens out. (laughs) Joking aside, uh, we've come to the point in Jesus' sermon where he begins to get uncomfortably practical with us. Jesus opens his sermon with the Beatitudes, pronouncing not a formula to obtain blessing, but the evidence that presents itself in the lives of those who are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Things like these. Now he's beginning to unpack what does it look like for one who's in the midst of those blessings to live? How does one live who is meek? How does one seek to be a peacemaker? What are the marks of those who are truly poor in spirit? And he goes to a heart level and a practical level, as we just saw and as we're about to unpack, and he begins with anger. And so it's important to start by just acknowledging that there's no bigger hypocrite in the room on a Sunday morning than the guy standing up front teaching the Word of God and giving applications for people to go and to live this out. I need to hear these words that Jesus is saying this morning as much as anyone in the room. Uh, suffice it to say, from as a child, fits of rage once kicked a hole in my bedroom wall over something very petty, to just the day-to-day impatience I might battle with my ordinary children or with the futility of the world, there's enough anger in my heart for Jesus to deal with. And so if this is something that you struggle with, you're in good company. I'm mad at something at some point every day, and very rarely is it for a righteous reason, for a good reason. So you are in good company this morning. Now, a couple weeks ago, Scott did an amazing job preaching verses 17 to 20 for us. He unpacked for us the truth that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to undo or to relax any of God's commands, but to embody them and to complete them. And he calls believers to live in obedience to that law, not to set it aside. And so that set Jesus up perfectly for what he's about to do this morning, which is to address some of the misconceptions that these first century Jews would have had about the law. Misconceptions that we're not immune to believing today. Misconceptions that that are common among modern Christianity. And so you'll see over the next few weeks that time and again Jesus will say something to the effect, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard the commands God gave to Moses, You've got your interpretations of them, but here's what I have to say to you. And so what's he saying? He's saying the prophet Moses was able to say, thus says the Lord. Here's what I've heard from Yahweh. But here's Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, the word made flesh, and he comes with thus I say. And in so doing, Jesus offers the perfect interpretation and the perfect application of the law, and therefore the ideal ethic for which every believer is called to strive for. Although, as we're going to see this morning, yet again, that we're going to struggle to live this out, each one of us. And so he begins by unraveling the misconceptions of the day in verse 21. Let me pray, and then we're just going to walk through this passage verse by verse together. So pray with me. God, thank you for loving your people enough to confront our unrighteous anger. Thank you that you are love, that God is love, and yet you are God who experiences anger, and your anger is never at odds with your love. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to bring our anger to you this morning. 
to not let it embitter or alienate us from other believers, but that uh, we would repent of selfish, unrighteous anger and that we would set our hearts and minds on you. So confront us and confirm us and comfort us through these words this morning. And God, would you be glorified in all that we do. In Christ we pray, amen. Verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Other translations here say, You've heard it said to our ancestors, to those who came long before us. Again, he's addressing an ancient tradition and long-standing interpretation with what would have been a radically new thought. So Jesus quotes the sixth commandment from Exodus 20, and he quotes the civil consequences for breaking that commandment from Numbers 35. Do not murder, referring, according to the commentaries, to any and all killing outside of war, capital punishment, or self-defense. And if you do murder, you'll have to face judgment. You'll have legal consequences for your murder. And none of this is a surprise for us this morning, and none of this would have been a surprise to those listening when Jesus gave this sermon. Murder is evil. It deserves punishment. No one's contesting that. Everyone gets that. Every culture understands that. It is the ultimate fracture between relationships, between God's image bearers. And as Shane pointed out a few weeks ago in the Beatitudes, this Sermon on the Mount is all about relationships. The destruction of an image bearer of God by another image bearer of God is an unthinkable corruption and tragedy in light of God's intended design. So God's prohibition in the Sixth Commandment is clear. Don't do it. Don't kill people. Fair enough. Now it would seem that this command is pretty easy to obey. Killing people, in general, is relatively avoidable. It doesn't take much effort to not kill someone. Some days it takes a little more effort than others. But in general, it's not something we worry about violating. This command isn't something we really think about much. So what did the Jews of the day do with a command like this? And how did the teachers of the law interpret it and apply it? And what might we be tempted to do with a command such as this? Do not murder? Cake. I got it. I'm good. I'm not that bad. I've got my issues. I'm not perfect. But I'm not out here killing people. So God must be, he must be pretty impressed. He must be pretty pleased with me. But what Jesus is about to show us is that this law is not simply about giving us a rule to follow, a cage to live in, but this is about shaping our hearts. So we should hear the command of God and say, I'm going to do all I can to not even get close to this prohibition. I want to become the type of person that this thing would never even be a problem. But you know how we are. We tow the line. I don't know if you've ever seen kids uh, pestering each other, running around, being rambunctious. And one of, the, one of the kids finally has enough and he lays out a law and he says, stop touching me. Ten times out of ten, what does the other kid do? I'm not touching you. We find a way to get as close to the prohibition as we can without technically breaking it. Jesus knows this. As Psalm 103 taught us last week with Travis, he knows our frame. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what we're beset with. So let's look at how Jesus unpacks his command in verse 22. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And with this statement, the bar has been raised. 
Every single person in attendance would have been shocked by this. Jesus just dove through the rigid exterior religious regulations of the day into the very depths of our being. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you that even to harbor contemptuous anger in your heart toward another image bearer is a rebellion against God so heinous as to be worthy of an eternity under God's judgment. If you feel rattled by this, that's the point. Jesus is using strong language here to wake us up from our comfortable religion. God intends not only to prevent the obviously destructive act of murder. He intends to shape us from the inside out. And so Jesus goes beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees, remember Scott's message, into the depths of the human heart. He's not after the type of obedience that says, well, I would really like to kill this person, but I would get in trouble if I did. He's not after that. He's not after the type of obedience that just says, I would do this, but I'm not allowed to. He's after true obedience. He wants our hearts aligned with his. He intends to uproot the seeds of murder before they have the opportunity to sprout. But in doing so, he brings us to grasp with his reality. Now, if I took a poll this morning and asked everyone in the room who'd ever murdered someone to raise their hand, I don't think anybody would raise their hand. I'm not going to take that poll because I know some of y'all. I'm a little scared to know what might happen, but... If what Jesus is saying is true, then it would seem there's no one in this room who doesn't stand convicted. What Jesus has done is he's taken the heart-level motivation behind the act of murder, and he's exposed it. Who has never been angry with his brother? Who hasn't been embittered or annoyed with someone this week, maybe this morning? So what Jesus has done here is he's captured us. He's got us. But what exactly does Jesus mean when he says everyone who's angry with his brother? If anger is an emotion God gave us, why is he now condemning us for it? So what's he talking about? He can't be talking about just day-to-day anger. So let's get this out of the way. There's a way to be angry without sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. A command to be angry. Even the Beatitudes lend themselves to a sort of indignation with the fallenness of the world. Blessed are those who mourn, who hunger for righteousness, who long so deeply for God to rescue the world from the futility of sin that it becomes a visceral hunger for rightness. Children of God who see the brokenness of the world and are physically bothered by it, who aren't numb to the news of yet another mass shooting, who aren't complacent in the sight of yet another act of injustice, but who get mad about it, who are furious with the way the world is. Jesus showed us that type of anger. Infamously, he saw the temple of God being turned into a business, the religious leaders of the day hindering God-fearing Greeks from worshiping him. He got mad. He got piping mad. And he didn't just flip out and react And anger didn't just take control of him. It says he fashioned a whip of cords. That took time. That was deliberate. And he chased men out of the temple with it, flipping their tables over. When a fig tree didn't produce its fruit as it should, he cursed the tree and it withered away instantly. 
It left a haunting metaphor for those in Israel who were likewise fruitless. So Jesus is not saying, never be angry. Anger is an emotion that God created, and God is love. The God who is love experiences anger, and his anger is never at odds with his love. Now, Jesus says in verse 22, whoever is angry with his brother. This is about relationships, again. This is about a violation of the love of God. This is about a pollution of the body of Christ. This is about how image bearers ought to relate to one another. Jesus is speaking here of the desire to devalue, to damage, to harm, to destroy, or to wish suffering upon another image bearer of God. So what did sin produce in the first generation from Adam? What did the children of Adam do with their sin in their hearts? Well, one got angry with the other, and Cain killed his brother. Cain's anger wasn't about a lack of righteousness in the world. It wasn't an indignation with the name of God being trampled upon. Cain's anger was about Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? He wasn't loving his neighbor. God told Cain, the blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground. Cain's anger was a bitter contempt towards another image bearer who had inconvenienced him. Envy gave birth to anger, and as James puts it, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So this wasn't about God, it was about Cain. And if we're honest, how many times can we say that our anger, day to day, week to week, is about anything other than ourselves, our own convenience, our own preferences? As I was preparing this very sermon, my boys, I was in my office, in my house, and they're ripping and running up and down the hall, just having a blast, being rambunctious. But they knew I was in there working, and I started to feel a little bit disrespected. And I started to feel my arms and my neck tighten up a little bit. How dare they? How dare they? Don't they know that other people live in this house? So what did I do with all that emotion? Well, I did what any self-respecting dad would do, and I stuck my head out in the hall, and like Animal from the Muppets, I just yelled, Quiet! And it was silent, and it felt good. And then I went, and I sat down, and I looked at the open Bible on my desk, and I glanced at this passage, and I thought, that was a little twisted, wasn't it? It's not like they were conspiring, like, oh, Dad's writing a sermon. We should thwart the word of God and make some noise and bring dishonor to the name of Jesus. They're just doing what God created them to do. They weren't breaking any of God's laws. They're breaking one of my laws. See that? So where does this unrighteous anger come from? Back in James chapter 1, he gives us a clue. What does James say to those tempted with this type of anger? What does he prescribe to those struggling with anger? He says this in verse 19. It's not on the screen, but he says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What is he getting at? What's he talking about? What he's describing here is meekness. The anger that Jesus is describing that is a danger to our souls and to the lives of others is a lack of meekness. It's enlightening how often in the scriptures pride and anger are addressed together. 
you can't obey this command if you're putting yourself before and above other people. That's what Jesus is getting at, and the Proverbs speak to this. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 15.18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who's slow to anger quiets contention. 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who don't put themselves at the center of their universe, and therefore they don't take personal offense quite so easily, who aren't fragile and volatile because the one who sits on the throne of their life can handle a little inconvenience. Blessed are those who are quiet and gentle and easily imposed upon. They shall inherit the earth. So let's look at the examples that Jesus gives us of how this lack of meekness tends to manifest itself in our lives. Back in verse 22, Jesus says, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Other translations are actually more literal here. The NIV says, Whoever says to his brother or sister, Raka. What is that? Raka is an Aramaic, Aramaic swear word. This is like road rage type language. It means empty-headed. I'll leave you to think of the English equivalents. He goes on to say, Whoever says to his brother, You fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The term you fool is the Greek term moros, same word from which we get the English moron. It basically means to call someone an idiot. Who hasn't done that? It denotes not only stupidity, but the type of stupidity that goes beyond a lack of intellect into moral impurity. This is an attack on character. So what's at play behind both of these insults? Both examples display one image bearer who seeks to devalue another, to take him down a notch. And the heart, that, the heart that seeks to devalue another image bearer is the same heart that seeks to exalt its own. It's a lack of meekness. So, recently Amy and I watched a man called Otto. Maybe you've seen it. It seems like every few minutes after basically any interaction with any other person... He walks away kind of cursing idiots under his breath. Otto was angry like Cain. And his anger was completely rooted in his, his own desires, his own preferences. And his anger made other people become a burden to him. And if other people are a burden to you, if your neighbor is a burden to you, how are you supposed to love your neighbor? You see how this unravels the, the greatest commandment. And if you can't love your neighbor, how are you going to love the God that created them? So this anger, when harbored in our hearts, puts us at odds with the Lord. But I have some days just like, just like Otto. Yesterday, Amy and I were on Lake Harrington doing a little fishing. My grandparents were watching the boys. God bless you. And Amy and I were fishing out of a canoe. And just so you know... The motor, the engine of a boat, like a bass boat, will scare all the fish totally out of the area you're fishing. We're fishing out of a canoe. It's quiet. We're catching them. We're having a great time. Here comes this dude through there, and he passes us up, scares every fish in the whole area, and then he gets to his spot, and he turns the engine off, and he drops his trolling motor, which is silent, into the water, and he starts fishing with his trolling motor. And I had some things to say about it. And they weren't righteous. 
Amy said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? <laughs> I said, okay. I mean, sometimes I'm out and about, do, just, and I see people doing things out in the world, and I just think, how can they be that clueless? We've all had days like that. In the car, someone cuts you off. What word comes out of your mouth? Someone on the opposite side of the political spectrum as you posts something incendiary on social media, and in your heart you think, what a moron. What a worthless person. You hear that? In our selfish anger, we devalue other image bearers with our words and our thoughts, and we call worthless what Christ considered worth dying for. And we do this because we're like Cain. We're trying to inflate ourselves or we belittle others who are made in the likeness of God, people for whom the precious blood of Christ was spilled. I've said horrific things about other people. I've said horrific things to their face. I've said these things in conversations with other Christians. I've said these things in conversations with other Christians about other Christians. And it's not like it's some scandalous language. It's, this, it's totally culturally acceptable. It's a subtle, contemptuous heart that can parade itself as righteousness. And Jesus is diagnosing the heart of a Pharisee behind that. A disease that will, in the end, prove fatal for all parties involved. So here's what Jesus is facing us with this morning. He said, our selfish anger is murderous. And if Jesus is right, we find ourselves this morning in a room full of murderers. We may not have shed blood, but we've committed the act inwardly. With the same tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those made in his likeness. Brothers and sisters, these things ought not be so. So Jesus takes the heart-level contempt between image bearers so seriously that in verse 23, he calls us to a reconciliation with urgency greater than that of our own worship. Look at verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The God who's worthy above all things to be worshipped says that you, if you have anger in your heart toward another, go and deal with it before you come before me and worship. What's he getting at? He's saying beware of trying to cover up your anger with religion. Don't think that church attendance or scripture memory or generosity are making up for the bitterness inside. He did endure the cross to create religion, but reconciliation. Go and be reconciled. That is worship. When God's image bearers live at peace with one another, it shows the world that the gospel works. It shows the world that God is who he says he is. That declares God's worthiness. And for image bearers to live in peace... They must have great meekness. So how do we become meek? Jesus gave us a prescription for this, so to speak, back in the Beatitudes. So beginning with the third Beatitude, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A beautiful promise. Those who are meek, who are easily imposed upon, who don't lash out in anger, when their glory is trampled upon, they shall inherit the earth. But what precedes meekness? What events must take place in our lives to create meekness in our hearts? For this we look to the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
So meekness comes not from strict discipline, not from self-abasement. It comes from mourning. It comes from loss. And that's a surprise because usually the heart that is experiencing loss is angry with God. But what do we do with that anger? Do we let that anger push us to him or from him? Meekness forms in a soul that has wrestled with loss and has laid itself before the Lord. The prophet describes the Messiah as acquainted with grief, familiar with suffering. But what type of mourning is it that brings meekness? For this we look to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So meekness comes from mourning, and mourning comes from contrition. Poverty of spirit. A heart that's broken over sin, its own sin and the state of the world. A heart that knows it can't do anything about it. James addressed this in chapter 4 of his epistle. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You hear that lack of meekness? What causes angry outbursts but selfish desire, a desire that leads to a sense of entitlement so strong that we won't even ask God for the thing we're wanting? So what does James advise to those who experience this lack of meekness? In verse 7, he says, submit yourselves to God. In verse 9, he says, be wretched and mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Poverty in spirit. We're to see our anger with all of its malice and bitterness, and we're to hear these arresting words of our Savior, that we're in danger of eternal consequences for the anger we've kept inside, that we've fed and fueled and harbored in our hearts, and we're to fall on our knees before the King and plead for mercy. And it's there lying on our face before the King of the universe, whose law we have transgressed, begging for mercy that we find that in his kingdom, even murderers are welcome. Let's look to the rest of the passage to see how this plays out. Join me in verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out till you've paid the last penny. Hear the urgency in Christ's words. Come to terms quickly. Prioritize reconciliation. Seek the peace. Take steps to seek the peace for which Christ died. Don't let anger ruin your life. Don't let it ruin your relationships. Notice how who Jesus called your brother in verse 22 has now become an accuser. See how anger will deteriorate our relationships. But what of those who find themselves this morning feeling those effects already? It's in what seems to be the most harrowing statement in the passage that we find our greatest hope. Verse 26. Truly I say to you, you will never get out till you've paid the last penny. Where is the hope in that? How could we possibly find hope in those arresting words? Well, in Jesus' time, prisoners would have been sentenced with a fine. They would remain imprisoned until they could pay that penalty in full. This put them in a pretty difficult situation because obviously they're not able to go to work, they're not able to make a wage, they're not able to pay their fine. 
And so oftentimes a simple sentence would mean lifelong imprisonment. So the only prisoners that would ever get out are the ones for whom an external benefactor came and paid their fine for them. Maybe you see where I'm going with this. You see, you and I are prisoners also. We've been imprisoned under sin for crimes that we've committed, serious crimes against a very good and powerful and loving king. And we've racked up enough fines to keep us in prison for life. And our only hope for ever walking away free is if some external benefactor comes and pays the fine for us. Romans 3 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've incurred a penalty so great that we have no hope of escape from prison on our own. The wages of our sin is the death penalty. We have no hope of paying this price. We don't have a penny to bring before the judge. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who don't have a penny to bring before him. We can't white-knuckle this thing. You can't bail yourself out of anger. You don't have the resources to pay this penalty. But he does, and he did. Christ is meek. Christ is pure in heart. Christ is a peacemaker, and yet he was handed over to a judge, and from a judge to a guard. Christ was sentenced, condemned to death like a murderer. Greater still, Christ set himself before the judge of heaven and earth. And he was found guilty of murderous anger. Not his beautiful sin mourning, righteous hungering, God glorifying anger of love, but our petty self centered anger, the anger that kills. And on the cross, the only one whose anger is always righteous and loving poured that holy wrath out upon Jesus so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ paid the last penny. And his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So in closing, let me speak of application. What should the children of God make of this challenging passage? I don't have a better application for you than the one that Jesus offers in verse 24. If you're guilty of an offense toward another image bearer, and you haven't taken steps towards reconciliation, I beg you, do it now. Do it quickly. Leave the service before the song is over and go seek reconciliation. In meekness, own your mistakes. Do it quickly. Pursue the peace for which Christ died to give you. And if you're angry with your brother this morning, Paul says in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Again, the solution to this unrighteous anger is Christ-like meekness. But that meekness can never come without the mourning of an impoverished spirit. We face our lack and we bring our nothing to God. We become poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who use their anger as a reason to run to God instead of away from him. So may the one who swallowed the righteous anger of God on behalf of the unrighteous anger of men enable us to pursue the peace he died to give us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for these challenging words this morning. 
Thank you that you love us enough to challenge us. You would call us out from uh, the dangers of anger and wrath, selfish uh, rage, Lord, that would imprison our souls, that would alienate us from your people and prevent us from obeying your commands. God, release us and help us by your spirit to turn from our anger, that we would come before you in meekness, pleading for mercy, knowing that in Christ that uh, even murderers can be forgiven, even those who who have harbored anger for years can be made new. Would you do that this morning as we come before you to sing? In Christ we pray, amen.